This is Let's Talk In Depth from Butterfly, your national voice for body image and eating disorders. Hi, Sam. Yuti Liz Dangban Waramai Golbang. My name is Liz and I'm a proud Waramai woman. Um, I'm a mother of two beautiful boys, a clinical psychology registrar. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Wollongong and a person with a lived experience of anorexia. You've heard us talk a lot about the holistic approach to recovery from eating disorders, which is becoming a widely accepted key to effective treatment. But what holistic means is difficult for many of us from a Western European background to get our heads around. Liz Dale, who works closely with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this field, says a traditional worldview might be just what we need to enhance and improve mainstream treatment. I'm a real passionate advocate for the improvement of Aboriginal health and wellbeing via the recognition and integration of our ways of knowing, being and doing within the mainstream healthcare sector. But I think it wasn't until my um, own lived experience journey with anorexia that I realised that there's a particular gap in the body image and eating disorders field for understanding um, how eating disorders are experienced and caused and um, by Aboriginal people and what is necessary and appropriate for our health and um, recovery in that space. So at the moment, there's very little research that has that is informing our assessment, treatment and diagnosis processes that have involved either Aboriginal people or Aboriginal knowledges. But, well, that kind of leads me into the next question. So, like, if we're talking about Aboriginal concepts of health and well-being and the ways that they differ from the prevailing Western approaches, can you tell us a little bit about that and how... Um, diagnosing and treating disease might be approached differently? Yeah, so the key differences between Western and Aboriginal understandings is that Aboriginal people regard health and wellbeing from a collectivist perspective and holistically according to seven interrelating whole-of-life elements, whereas the Western approach is typically individualistic and based on an absence of a disease biomedical model that focuses on symptom identification and resolution. It has been built on um, Aboriginal cultural ways of experiencing life, experiencing each other, um, tradition and protocols in terms of what we know makes us strong and healthy peoples, what we know has been really important for the continuation of our culture um, and what we know is what contributes to our strength and resilience. So the seven whole-of-life elements that have been packaged under what we now articulate as a social-emotional wellbeing model are connection to body, connection to mind and emotions, connection to family and kinship, connection to community, connection to culture, to country, to spirituality and ancestors. And within that model, it also recognises that the social, cultural, political and historical context have a real concurrent and cumulative effect on the social and emotional well-being of a community and therefore an individual. And when it comes to the differences in perspective following on from that, what about mental health? How is um, the way that you approach mental health different? So the social emotional well-being model is one way of conceptualising um, an individual's uh, mental health conditions or what they're experiencing. It, it's not specifically a mental health tool because within the model you can also understand why people might be physically unwell or relationally unwell or spiritually unwell. But um, some of the differences within the mental health field is that the mainstream 
field tends to compartmentalise the human experience and scientists scientifies people and problems. Not sure if that's a word, but it's a new word now. It is now, Liz, it is Um, now. And it seems to overlook the influence of culture and spirituality on a person's health and well-being. So how would you describe that connection between mental health, body image um, and eating disorders? Obviously, they're all connected. Yeah, so as an Aboriginal person drawing from clinical lived experience and cultural knowledge, I see these issues as having interrelated causes and perpetuations of one another. So I understand these issues according to the soup model. Um, And just to explain a little bit about how they're connected, I'm going to use a colleague of mine's analogy where if we can see the soup wheel as a, um, the soup model as a car wheel, at the centre of the hub, we would place the self. But remember, for Aboriginal people, it's a collectivist perspective of self, which is defined and experienced in relation to our kin and our community systems. Then the wheel will be divided into the seven elements. Um, and what do we know happens if a car wheel is, say, pierced with a nail, for example? The whole wheel. Yeah, that's right. right. The whole wheel deflates. It's not just the point of the puncture. So say, for example, you know, utilising that analogy, um, a person stops going to the community events because they're experiencing feelings of grief and loss, for example. You know, we're constantly, unfortunately, experiencing a lot of grief and loss in our communities. It's something that affects us on a day-to-day basis. So let's just say, for example, someone's um, in sorry business, they're grieving, um, and their decreased community participation means that they don't have emotional cultural support for these feelings, and that's likely to lead to a depressed mood, and that's likely to affect things like their sleeping and their eating pattern, which might look like under um, overeating or oversleeping, um, and then that could ex- um, transpire into how a person sees and feels about their body, and then it's just continuous perpetuation, and then the overeating might lead to the higher risk of chronic diseases, and that person becomes very unwell at multiple, multiple levels. And I think you've started to answer this next question already. Is it, um, What ways do the risk factors for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people differ for those of us who are non-Indigenous? Yeah, so we know from some of the government reports and the research that's been done that Aboriginal people are up to three times more likely to experience psychological issues than non-Aboriginal people. And, you know, to put simply, it's because we live in a colonised society where white privilege dominates policymaking and clinical practices. And we're living within a Eurocentric dominated society that devalues culture and cultural knowledge. And it's overtly racist towards us through actions and inactions. So either the um, exclusion of um, Aboriginal people from media and advertising or, or continually being negatively portrayed through the media and the portrayal of us through racial stereotypes so that not only affects how Aboriginal people see each other, but how they see themselves, and it creates barriers for the integration of our ways of knowing, being, and doing into a, like a mainstream healthcare sector that would ultimately be our source of strength and healing. And that's staggering, though, three times as much. That's huge. You must be extremely busy as a clinical psychologist in your community. <laughs> Yeah, well, yes and no, you'd you'd think so. But again, because when we consider Aboriginal health and wellbeing, we we need to recognise that there are a range of access and engagement barriers for for people to seek treatment. And the treatment that is being sought is is often inappropriate. Like it goes back to the fact that our ways of knowing, being and doing have not been 
well enough researched or highlighted or articulated or uh, valued enough to be embedded into the, the sector or to be readily available to us. Wow. So people are not feeling empowered enough to go and get help for something, even if they know they've got a problem. Not sure if it's about necessarily not feeling empowered. I feel like it's more that the system is not um, as accommodating or as, in, or as inviting or as welcoming as it could be. You know, for a lot of us, Mob, we carry the burden of intergenerational trauma and, and within that there's a mistrust for white services um, and for um, white service providers which dominate the industry, particularly with the eating disorders and the body image sector. But there's also like um, for rural or remote people, a lack of access to appropriate care or the care that they're provided is, um, you know, that fly in, fly out model where it's a different service provider almost every time. And so it's, it's that inability to form a trusting relationship with someone and then be able to speak to that person about your your deep issues and your personal concerns and then trust them enough to either provide you with a service or, if you're lucky enough, be able to access an Aboriginal worker who can provide you a culturally, culture-informed approach to your treatment and care. That may or may not involve some of the mainstream approaches. Um, I'm a firm believer that there is a chance that Aboriginal ways of knowing, being and doing can actually enhance the, the mainstream treatment sector right now. We've got just, yeah. So, well, tell us about that. So what ways can Aboriginal concepts of health and well-being kind of protect against mental health, including body image and eating disorders? Um, but also maybe that's not something that – maybe that's something that the Western part of our community could learn from as well and benefit from. I feel it could. I feel like particularly our holistic approach to addressing um, mental health concerns or to addressing a problem, a person's health condition would be of great benefit. And as we know, coming through some of the eating disorder research, that reconnecting people to their lives and um, helping people reestablish meaningful relationships is actually beneficial and it actually helps people recover from eating disorders. We know that part of the eating disorder treatment involves, you know, socialised eating. And for Aboriginal people, eating was was culture, was tradition, was ceremony. There was, there was a lot around the preparation of food, the gathering of food, the acquisition of food, the types of food you ate, the times that you ate the food, the people you ate the food with. If you look at the way that we are treating our own community in, in terms of, you know, the, the broader white community, maybe we could incorporate some of the things that you are learning and it might have a, an amazing effect. I believe so. And I think I read recently that Australia was actually the second highest individualistic society in the world. And so already that is a huge contrast to the Aboriginal culture, which is entirely collectivist, where we regard our sense of self from the people that we're connected to and how we're connected to those people our sense of self is inseparable from and embedded within our family and our members of our community and 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 that's connected to the country that we're from and 
And yeah. in, within that country, we have access to the knowledges we need to understand how to live and how to, to be healthy and to be strong. And that is like our source of resilience. That's our protective factors. What kind of um, things do mental health pe- do mental health professionals need to know when they're caring for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Like what's, what, what should they be doing differently? Well, I have some some practical advice, but I also want to um, back up what you said in that I feel like people are doing their best and that, you know, as I said before, the the Western approach is very scientific and it's based heavily on the, the research and the evidence literature, which don't get me wrong, I'm not discrediting that and I think that that has effect and I have seen and utilised that myself as a clinician to the benefit of other people's. But I feel like because, you, as you said, we're still seeing very high rates of eating disorder and body image concerns. Sadly, a lot of, you know, death associated with people who have not made recovery possible, that it is time to broaden our minds and our approaches and look at alternative, well, not alternative approaches, but other approaches out there, which I'm proposing would be the Aboriginal way of looking at, at life and recovery and, and healing and recovery. So my practical advice to any health professional who is caring for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, um, either with an eating disorder or with any kind of health issue, would be just, first of all, get to know your client as a person. We're a relational community, so it's really important that you establish a trusting relationship first and then your your job would be to listen to their story and then to ask questions. Don't assume cultural homogeneity because we are a very diverse cultural group. Don't assume cross-cultural equivalence of symptom expression or experience. Practice critical reflection, so uh, reflect on how your position of privilege might be coming across in that healing space and in that relationship. Treat um, our health matters holistically, i.e. you're not just treating anorexia, but you're treating the person's connection to their culture, their community, their spirit, etc. Um, and also be aware of the historical, political and social determinants of a person's health situation. And if uh, push back against systemic access engagement barriers, such as lack of transport or service cost or um, even um, clinical settings that are very... Um, kind of clinical or harsh or don't appear inviting or, or comfortable, safe for Aboriginal people. And and it's not just about putting dot paintings up. It's about actually thinking about about clinical rooms as spaces, as, as healing places, as storytelling kind of spaces where people can tell story and share knowledges about about recovery and about health. Um yeah. And then champion, be a champion in your workplace for the integration of Aboriginal knowledges within the healthcare system and within your workplace. I, I really like this approach as well because we, we're all people, right? You, your community, however, has tens of thousands of years more experience in being a community, whereas we've only got the last few hundred years. Like, I don't know, is that too simplistic or, or, or am I onto something? No, I think you're certainly onto something. And the fact that our culture has survived, it's one of the oldest living cultures in the world, shows how important that sense of community is and that belonging and that 
that belongingness to a community and that community approach to whole of life living is. I reckon it's something really we really should look into a little bit more and try and, I mean, work together more. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice. I think so. I think definitely there's that need to um, obviously treat people individually where they are um, and obviously at the end of the day each person is different. So a communal approach may work for some or an individualistic approach might work better for another person but rather than applying the biomedical symptom resolution model where for a lot of eating disorder people it might involve, you know, nutritional restoration and neural rewiring, look at that person in, sen- in terms of that community that they belong to or the community that they used to belong to but the eating disorder has taken from them and reconnecting them back into a system where they're more they, they are supported and other aspects of their life can be strengthened which would weaken hopefully the need for the eating disorder to be there because we all know that eating disorders pop up in people's lives for different reasons. Look, as somebody who has recovered from an eating disorder, who is uh, Aboriginal, what kind of what, what, what advice do you have for pe- for people who could be um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, or people who are non Indigenous who are struggling with the same issues? Uh, the first thing I'm going to say is that recovery is damn hard, and there is no sugarcoating the fact that you have to sit in many spaces of discomfort and that it is emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally draining and exhausting. And it's really important that amongst that you find your why and that you find your champions. Recovery is not possible on your own because you're susceptible to the eating disorder involving itself in your recovery, and that's exactly what we don't want or need. So you really do need to acknowledge that it's a difficult process, but that it's a process, if you think about it from a different perspective, that you're regaining life and that you are reconnecting to a life from a more knowledgeable and wise place because the recovery journey can actually be quite empowering and enriching because you're able to you you're you're taught to reflect on yourself and and to to learn about yourself again it it always depends on each person's own experience of course and how long they've lived with that but but there is a way that you can reframe it in your mind as a positive and empowering process and I would he- and, and I would encourage people not to hesitate to reach out for help um, and support as early as possible. Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of insight into a world that a lot of us have got no idea about. Thank, Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Appreciate you having the yarn with me today. For more information and some great resources on improving the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Go to butterfly.org.au and search for Everybody is Deadly. There's a link in the show notes as well in case that helps. And if you need support now, there are trained support officers ready to help at the Butterfly Helpline. The number to call is 1-800-ED-HOPE. 
or 1-800-334673. 1-800-334673. Let's Talk In Depth is an Icon Media production for the Butterfly Foundation. And if you like what we're doing here, please leave us a rating or a review. We'd really appreciate that. I'm Sam Icon. Thank you so much for your company.